So I want to welcome all of you to our series, uh, Leading Together. Uh, welcome. This might be your first Sunday that you're with us, so glad you're here. Um, we're, uh, for five weeks, we're diving into the topic of women, men, and authority in the church. Women, men, and authority in the church. And our desire as a church is to be followers of Jesus, apprentice to Jesus, and we're trying to discover his desire for the roles that women and men play in the leadership of his church. And the really simple question that we've been asking throughout this series is this, are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? And here at North Langley, we are saying yes. Yes, women are called to serve in primary positions of leadership in the church. Men and women are called to leadership together, leading together. And what I want to do is I've been given some feedback that it'd be nice each week to kind of unpack the two positions that that different Christians hold when it comes uh, to, to this series that we're in and, and to this question. And so I want to do that again today. So in the church globally, uh, churches have been divided um, about how to answer that question. So let me explain the two groups. Uh, one group is, uh, well, they would, one group of churches around the world would read the Bible and see God giving women the green light to pastor to preach, to teach, and to lead with authority in any leadership role in the church. No restrictions, total equality. In the English-speaking world, this is typically called the egalitarian position. Another group of churches around the world see God's gifts given to women, but women are to exercise those gifts only under the authority of male leadership. This position has been called the complementarian position. The idea here is that both women and men complement each other in ministry, but men ultimately have the authority in the church. For example, if a church's highest leadership position is uh, that of a lead pastor, then that pastor should be a male. Or if the highest leadership position in a church is an elder board, a group of elders, then all of those elders should be male. So egalitarian complementarian. Now, I've mentioned before, and I think I will mention it a few more times, that I, I don't love these words. I, I don't think they're, they're great words. Um, uh, they're not words found in the Bible. Uh, they're pretty new words in the history of the church, and neither word really actually captures the position well. So while these terms are not great, I, I do feel the need to use them in this series because as, as you all, part of this church, kind of go about, uh, maybe in dialogue with other Christians or reading books, um, reading articles on this topic, these are the two words that most Christians use. They're kind of the popular words for these two positions. And so that's why I'm going to use them in this, in this series. But here's the deal. I would love for us to experience a unity in the days ahead. I really want that for our church. That, that no matter where you land, like I recognize that after five weeks, you may not be convinced of, of, the, of this particular reading of scripture, of um, how we've accumulated all the data and arrived at our egalitarian position. You may not be convinced, but my, my hope is that no matter where you land, we can continue to worship together. We can continue to follow Jesus together. We continue, can continue to serve our city together in the name of Jesus. 
So as you can tell, I have been quite convinced that the egalitarian reading of the scriptures makes sense of all of the data. It makes sense of all of the scriptures, of the fullness of the gospel, of the heart of Jesus, all of it. But I would like to turn the table and just ask you, what are you seeing? We're in week three here, and in the last couple of weeks, as you've met with your life group, as you've processed this yourself, maybe you've spent some mornings in the word of God studying this, what are you finding? What are you seeing? I hope that you've begun to enjoy this journey of diving into God's word to see what's there. Um, I want to highlight again a, a link on our website. It's uh, nlcc.ca slash leading, leading. If you go there, sermons will be there, but also podcasts that I'm recording with Corey, just trying to work through some of the feedback, some of the pushback, some of the questions that are coming up in this series. There's also a place, and I mentioned this last week, to ask questions. And so um, feel free to hop on there, and maybe your question is a question somebody else has. You can actually vote on questions, um, on, on the questions you want answered. And so I'll be looking at that every week um, as we record these podcasts or as I prepare kind of messages. So feel free to, to check that out. Thank you for all those who've submitted questions. That's great. So, little recap. Two weeks ago, in the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 to 2, we see women and men called to partner in co-ruling creation. Do you remember that? And last week, we saw all kinds of women that God has used as leaders amongst his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's an encouraging list of, of female leaders. And so, here on week three, I hope that you and I are starting to see that we are better when women and men are leading together. We're better when women and men are leading together. And so Jesus, chief shepherd of the church, we are praying that you would give light to our eyes, that you would open up your scriptures, and that you would teach your church. And Lord, that our hearts would be strangely warmed by your voice, by your presence, by the move of your spirit in this room. And God, we are praying for truth, for grace, and for a whole lot of love for one another as we dive in to the complexity of this passage today. We thank you. We thank you that you're here with us, and we trust that. Amen. Okay, so for the next few weeks, we are going to unpack some difficult verses some really difficult verses. And there are several difficult passages in the Bible when it comes to understanding the role of women and men in the church. Maybe as you have been reading your Bible early in the morning, uh, you've come across one of these verses that we're gonna unpack in the next few weeks. And you're like startled, you know? You're like, what does that verse mean? Like, what's going on there? And so today we run uh, into our very first challenging verse. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, so if you have your Bible, feel free to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 34 and 35. 34 and 35. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and in a number of minutes we're going to get the context for all of this, and we're going to kind of unpack what Paul might be doing here, but just let's just hear the verses read out loud, verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, 
for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. As I mentioned last week, if I was in a hotel room and grabbed a Gideon's Bible, you know those free Bibles in the, in the hotel, um, and, uh, and I had no knowledge of the Bible, I just started flipping through the Bible, uh, and I read this verse, I came across this verse, in this English translation, without looking at the context to the Greek, what would I think? I think I would think women should remain silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak. And even that it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. I think this is what I would think, right? Wayne Coville, reporting uh, for CBS News in Virginia, reported the story of an American man named Tom Hicks who painted 1 Corinthians 14 on the back of his truck. And we have an image of the back of his truck. Imagine driving down the road and, and seeing that. Hicks, Hicks painted crosses, the fish symbol, and the phrase, read your Bible. Now, it might surprise you to know that Hicks did this for the opposite reason than you might expect. Listen to this. This is wild. Hicks is an atheist, and his desire is for people to go to their Bibles and to find for themselves how terrible the Bible really is. He said it this way, quote, The reason I put this particular message on, I want people to read the Bible. I want them to see this message and say, is that true? And then referencing the Bible, he says, quote, It's a hateful, hateful piece of work which Christians try to turn around and they talk about love. That's a... I'm critiquing Tom Hicks. That's a very interesting way to make your point, Tom, right? What do you do with this verse? What do you do with this verse? Well, first of all, I hope you and I feel attention when we come to this verse. As I mentioned a second ago, two weeks ago, we heard God's heart for women and men to partner in co-ruling in the book of Genesis. Last week, we saw examples of many women as leaders uh, throughout the Bible, leading God's people. So when you come across this verse, I hope that you feel a tension. This verse calls for us to lean in and embark on a process of discovery. So let's do that together this morning. So as we begin, you need to know that those who hold a complementarian position read this verse and they see an affirmation of male authority over women. Now, you may be a complementarian here, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And yes, so complementarian scholars. So I was reading Tom Schreiner. I was reading D.A. Carson. So, these, so they make a, a, a point to say that this is an affirmation of male authority. So I'll, I'll quote Tom Schreiner. He uh, is a New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary. He says this, quote, the women are not to speak in such a way that they arrogate leadership. As in all the other churches, they are to behave submissively so that the leadership of the church belongs to men. So pretty clear. Complementarian scholars will come to this verse and see a very clear uh, affirmation of male leadership. This is God's design, right? The leadership of the church belongs to men, and women are called to submit to that male leadership. Let me challenge those of you who are egalitarians, who hold this egalitarian position. 
What do you do with this verse? How do you make sense of it? As I've mentioned before, and I will mention again, it is not enough to say, well, the Bible's misogynistic, and so I'm just going to ignore that verse. I don't think that's enough. We must arrive at our position, if we're apprenticed to Jesus, in the scriptures. So whatever position you take, have you arrived at that position anchored in the scriptures, anchored in the good news of Jesus? So let's, let's dive in here. Let's go on a journey. And I want to show you some things that as I studied this passage, they were just popping out to me as just fascinating things that, that, that are a part of understanding this verse. So let's go on a bit of a journey here. First of all, I want to show you one of the first things that I saw here, not that I saw or came up with, but first thing pointed out to me by theologians, is that notice something interesting. Women are prophesying in the city of Corinth. Women are prophesying there in the church in the city of Corinth. See, a few chapters before our passage, we read these words in 1 Corinthians 11. By the way, 1 Corinthians 11 is very complicated. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. Um, there's a whole thing about head coverings in worship. Just pause that in your mind. But within the confusion of, the, of those verses, we read this, quote, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Again, we're a little blinded about the head covering piece, but just notice something really important. There in the church at Corinth, women are praying and prophesying in the church. Do you see that? Women are praying and prophesying in the church. They are standing up with a prophetic word for the people of God. So in 1 Corinthians 14, we hear, quote, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we hear every woman who prays or prophesies, dot, dot, dot. So which is it, Paul? You can't have it both ways? What's the deal? Is Paul contradicting himself? I don't think so. I think there's a lot more to see here. But my, my point is, women can't be praying and prophesying in the church while remaining silent in the church. You see the problem? It's important to see the problem the tension. And so, again, let me ask you, what do you do with the tension? How do you explain it? A vision of women prophesying was prophesied by the prophet Joel and announced by Peter on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Women prophesied. It's pretty clear in the scriptures. Now, here's the deal. The complementarian position makes a distinction between preaching, or sorry, between prophecy and teaching. Prophecy and teaching. Teaching, complementarians argue, is the official teaching of doctrine, and only men are allowed to do that. But prophecy is a spontaneous revelation in worship. So by the way, so if you're new to Jesus or new to, new to worship, new to Christianity, the idea here is that there's this official position where we teach the official teachings of the church, but there's this other thing, prophecy, that happens in worship. Maybe music is playing or the prayers are being, and somebody stands up with kind of a word from God. All right. Listen to Tom Schreiner 
complementarian scholar, and he explains the difference. Quote, I conclude that prophecy is not to be equated with the teaching required of those serving as elders, overseers, pastors. It also follows that prophecy is distinct from the gift of teaching. Teaching involves the explanation of tradition that has already been transmitted, whereas prophecy is fresh revelation. All right, so the idea is teaching is explaining the faith to the church, and only men can do that. But prophecy is fresh revelation from God, and both men and women can do that. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the complementarian reading. Now, I need to take a quick rabbit trail, because some of you, if you might be new to Jesus or Christianity, you're like, why? Why would a complementarian say that a woman can prophesy but not teach? So I need to bring a bit of information that we're going to look at in a deeper way next week. But, but here's the deal. Complementarians argue that what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is that women are, and I just want to pause here really quick. Some of what I'm going to say, uh, if you're a woman, it could, it, uh, it, could, it could be hard to hear. So just walk with me through this. I know this is hard to hear. But that the argument here is that women are much more easily deceived than men are. So much more easily deceived. That's the idea. Let me quickly show you the verse they go to. So, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So again, the idea is women are more easily deceived. Now, if you will, come back next week to see why I, I don't believe, I do not believe that's the right way to understand this verse. But I want to give you just the complementarian position Women are more easily deceived. So, so, I, want, so I, I have a question. <laughs> Here's my pushback to the pushback. If women are more easily deceived, as the argument goes, why are they allowed to prophesy? This is my big question. Why are they allowed to prophesy in the church at Corinth? Because prophecy is, sponta- is a spontaneous word from God. Would we not want trusted people giving words from God? In the congregation, Craig Keener writes this, quote, if women can prophesy in gender mixed company but not teach, does this mean women can more accurately speak God's message and better avoid deception by spontaneous inspiration than by handling scripture? Keener's point is that if we are afraid that women who teach will lead to error, Which one of the two gifts is more open to the potential for error? Is it spontaneous inspiration from prophecy? Or is it the careful handling of scripture that comes through teaching? I really want us to get this point, so I'm going to use an analogy, okay? Let me illustrate this. If you were to come to my house and I was going to cook you a meal, and you were concerned about my cooking, which is fair, You should be very concerned about my cooking, okay? What statement would put you most at ease? You'd be like, oh, okay, good. This is going to be a good meal, right? Either A, I say to you, hey, I followed a recipe from a cookbook filled with recipes that have been tested by chefs, right? Or, don't worry. I spontaneously whipped up something from spontaneous cooking inspiration. Actually, it came to me in a dream last night, right? Which one of those gives you more peace, 
right? It's the first one, right? It's the first one. And I'm saying that's more like teaching in the church. You've got time. You're able to dive into the word of God, proper doctrine, and then you teach it. But prophecy is spontaneous, right? Spontaneous inspiration in the worship set. Whipping up something spontaneously is awesome from a mature cook, right? Who knows their way around the kitchen and is well-versed in knowledge from the cookbook. So here's the deal. I believe that women who prophesy, they would have had to be vetted. You have to show that you're mature in Christ. You would have to have a knowledge of the truth in order to do that spontaneous thing in the house of God. Okay, so again, this is really important, so I I hope I'm being clear here. Which of the two gifts, prophecy or teaching, is more open to the potential for error? It's the spontaneous inspiration of prophecy. So if we're really concerned that women are more easily deceived, why are they allowed to do the spontaneous thing but not the organized thing? Do you follow? My point is, is that this understanding from the complementarian position has not... uh, been helpful to me, right? If women can be trusted to prophesy in the church, then they can be trusted to teach with authority. Now, this brings me to my second point, which is prophecy has a teaching element to it. This idea that we read about from a complementarian position, which is a strong point, (laughs) but this idea that prophecy and teaching are just totally different, I I don't see that in the scriptures. There's a lot more of this, (laughs) a lot more commonality. Here's what I mean. So some of you might be new to Jesus and prophecy is is new to you. And let me just describe prophecy. Prophecy is simply the communication of God's truth into a specific situation. So God's truth spoken into a specific situation. I like how Alita Friesen and Chris Price uh, say in their book, The Whole Church. By the way, this is a great book, The Whole Church. I recommend it to all of you to read. Um, It's very thin, so that's good. Uh, Very thin. But it it describes the egalitarian position in a beautiful way. But, But they write this, quote, This instruction clearly assumes that women are both praying and prophesying publicly when the church is gathered. The prophetic gift did involve spontaneous sharing and exhortation, but it also had an instructive element for the church community, whether it be boldly proclaiming the word of God into a certain circumstance or foretelling the future. I just want to highlight a couple words there. Notice, prophecy has an instructive element to it, right? It's teaching. (laughs) Prophecy has a teaching component to it, right? How do we know that? Well, a little, you say, like, prove it in the word. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 14, we read this. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, here it is, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Instructed. Prophecy here in the church in Corinth is about being instructed. The Greek word is manthano, which is to gain knowledge by instruction. So when women are prophesying in Corinth, they're giving an instruction, instructive word. They're teaching. That's what they're doing. Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) It's a word from God for the good of the body of, of Christ. So prophecy has this instructive element to it. Women are teaching. They're instructing the church. Women are not being silent. 
And I just want to say, we as a church family, for, for years, as we've had, held a complementarian position in the past, um, it's been what we called a soft complementarian position because North Langley has allowed women to preach in the church. Uh, the leadership at our church has been male, almost like this kind of umbrella leadership of authority. And so, so some of what I'm saying here has, is, is in alignment with where our church has always been, right? We've had female preachers here before. But I'm trying to set up the problem. Do you see the problem? Are you guys with me? 1 Corinthians 14 cannot mean what we think it means on a face value reading of the scriptures. So to summarize, women are prophesying in Corinth and prophecy has a teaching element to it, an instructive element to it. So all of this brings us to the question, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I want to ask you, could it be that what we're looking for is a kind of speaking that Paul is forbidding? Could it be that there's a kind of speaking that Paul is not happy with in the church at Corinth? When we look at the context, which is really important, of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, we notice a theme. Paul cares deeply about ordered worship, worship done in an orderly way. That's key. Super key. If you want to kind of, we're not just zero in on two verses, but kind of step back and see what Paul is doing, we notice his heart for ordered worship. Let me show you three verses really quickly, revealing Paul's passion for order and worship. Worship in the church at Corinth was out of control, okay? So Paul's like, we need some order. Here we go. Look at verse 26 in chapter 14. When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Look at verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And look at verse 40. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Do you hear God's, or Paul's heart, for order in worship? He cared about order. Imagine here today if everyone was just kind of talking throughout the sermon. I want to thank you for not doing that. Okay? Thank you so much, right? Imagine if somebody here just stood up and started speaking in tongues for a very long time, and all of us awkwardly did not know what they were saying, right? Uh, imagine people all running up here to this section right here and grabbing the microphones, and one grabbed one mic, one grabbed the other, and they were trying to have prophetic words, uh, words from the Lord, um, and, uh, and then I needed to sit down, and then they said something, and then it, it just was chaos, right? It's, it would be chaos. Well, I want you to see what Paul cares about. He really cares about order of worship. And can I remind you, these are house churches, right? So we're kind of in a public kind of setting here in a large room, right, with a stage, lighting. This was not the case in the early church. Picture a packed house, right? A house packed in with people, right? And so this is the setting. It's important to do things in an orderly way. So can you hold your Bible open? Just, just look at 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14. It's not that you have to read it, but I just want you to scan these chapters and see what's going on. So if you have your Bible open, you turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Notice chapter 11. And if you go through 1 Corinthians 11, you'll notice that, that, that Paul focuses on appropriate clothing in the worship gathering. Appropriate clothing. Do you see that there? And a little later on in the chapter, in chapter 11, he talks about the, ab the abuse of the Lord's Supper. He talks about like, 
properly taking the Lord's Supper together. You see that? Just scan it. Just check it out. You're just kind of scanning it. Then in chapter 12, he's got this whole section on spiritual gifts and how to properly uh, use the spiritual gifts. By the way, if you're interested in spiritual gifts, we did a whole series on this um, last fall on the, on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, I, you know, feel free to check that out. But, the, but he, he cares about this. He, he wants us all to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us in an orderly way. And then there's a chapter on love, which is very important. Chapter 13, right? I'll mention that in a second. A, a chapter on love. And then we arrive at our chapter, chapter 14. And, he, and Paul is speaking directly to several groups of people. Notice in verse 28, in verse 28, right? There is someone who is speaking in tongues without an interpreter. You see that? He needs to bring order to that. And notice in verses 30 to 41, people are not waiting their turn to prophesy. Do you see that as you scan it? And that brings us to verses 34 and 35, which are our, which are our verses for the day. So when we arrive at these verses, my question to you is maybe, maybe, is he addressing a certain group of women who need to learn how to worship in an orderly way? They're not worshiping in an orderly way. And Paul, like he's done with all these other groups, needs to be like, hey, this group, I need you to worship in an orderly way. So they are either talking at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Now, not all women, but a particular group of women who are speaking out of turn. Let me just pause and ask, are we still on the same page? Are you tracking with me? Oh, no. Yes? Okay. My, one of my biggest fears as a teacher is that I'm moving, I, it's, that it, there's no clarity. So I, I apologize if that's the case. But so, so far, you don't need to agree with what I'm saying. Just I hope I'm being clear. Okay. So let's read our verse again, and let's think to ourselves, is there a group of women in the church at Corinth who are doing something in a way that is not ordered worship? So women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, as we unpack this, did you know that the Greek words for husband and wife are the same as those for man and woman? All, throughout the New Testament, the, 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 word, the terms anerm and gunem can be translated husband and wife or man and woman. That's helpful, hey? <laughs> That's confusing. So anywhere you encounter the words husband, wife, man, or woman in the New Testament, that is a translation decision. Somebody who was writing your English Bible decided, hmm, is that wife or woman? Okay, and then they wrote, in, they wrote it in. They typed it in, okay? Or they come across the word man. They're like, is that husband or man, right? It's the same word in the Greek. So it's a decision by the translators. So here in 1 Corinthians 14, I believe that a, the best translation is that the, the word should say wife, not women. Wife. Notice verse 35. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. Notice husbands at home. Not all women at the church in Corinth had a husband at home. How do we know this? 
I'll try to say more about this in the podcast this week. But there are five groups of women that Paul addresses at Corinth. Widows, they don't have a husband at home, right? Uh, single women, uh, divorced, women who are divorced, right? He goes through five sets of women, and one of them are wives. I can't remember the fifth off the top of my head. But he goes through these multiple groups of women. And so here, these women have a husband at home. So this cannot mean all women because all women don't have a husband at home. There must be something about married couples that Paul wants to bring some clarity to in worship. So did you know, this is interesting, many wives in Corinth would not have had access to education in the same way that their husbands did. Listen to Linda Belleville. She writes, quote, The key is in grasping the educational limits of married women. Formal instruction stopped for most girls at the marriageable age of 14 in the Greek world or 16 to 18 in the Roman. Greek boys, by contrast, continued their education well into their 20s and did not typically marry until their 30s. A good liberal arts education was seen as crucial for the development of boys into responsible male citizens. Thus, the men brought a maturity to the marriage relationship the women did not have, and they were in a position to rule while women were not. So here's a solid theory that I think is very possible. Because what do we do with this complicated passage? Well, I ask the, I'm asking the question, could it be that there was so much background to cover that married women were trying to catch up in the worship gathering? Again, let me, go with me in your mind to the first century, to house churches, to the chaos that worship could be in a packed house in a living room, as it were, Right? Somehow, wives who had not had access to the education their husbands had are asking questions during worship, and it is becoming a distraction. So let me say that again. Wives who did not have the access to education that their husbands had are bringing up questions in worship that somehow are a distraction. And Paul will argue that a better way, a more ordered way, is for wives to go home and get the background t- material that they need from their husband at home, who would have been given the advantage of an education. The proper order for the church service, in Paul's mind, is going to flow when women saved, or sorry, not women, when wives saved their questions until they got home. Craig Keener writes, quote, Whereas questions at public lectures were expected, ancient literature testifies that unlearned questions were considered foolish and rude, and women generally possessed inadequate education and were most often unlearned. Now, I want to say, if this, if what I'm saying sounds harsh towards women, you're like, save your questions till you get home, I want to remind you of a, of a couple things. First of all, um, others are silenced in the church in 1 Corinthians. So Paul's not just picking on these wives who didn't have a benefit to education. He's telling all kinds of people to be quiet, <laughs> right? Paul's a direct communicator, right? Um, I didn't grow up in a home like that. But anyway, he's a, he's a, a direct, he, he's, you know, say it how it is. So he is saying to long-winded prophets, please be quiet. I, I actually don't know if he says please. He says be quiet. Uh, unintelligible speakers, <laughs> speaking in tongues forever, quiet. He's silencing all kinds of people. Paul cares about order. So I do not believe that he is only picking on this group of wives. 
He is just watching the worship in the, in the church at Corinth or hearing about the worship in the church at Corinth, and he's got to bring some order here. This is chaos, guys, right? Sometimes you need to be quiet in, in, in worship. Now, I want to quickly let you know that I'm going to go a little bit deeper into this little phrase. Did you see verse 34? It says, as the law says. Do you see that little phrase, as the law says? If you're interested in that, would you just tune in this week? It was just too much to put in today. Um, uh, to the After Sunday podcast, we'll dive into the law. What, what is Paul appealing to when he talks about the law? But just a little preview of that. Um, I believe that he's not appealing to the Torah, which is the Old Testament law, but that he's appealing to what throughout the New Testament we see him appeal to. He appeals to the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is there. Right now, if you're new to the Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians 13. It is all about uh, the law of love, right? This, this, this ethic to love your neighbor. So when Paul brings order to the church, he's talking a lot about what it means to love fellow worshipers um, uh, in, in Jesus' name and bring order to the church. But I'll say a lot more about that later. I'm sure that was deeply unsatisfactory. So anyway, okay. Um, so, but let me show you some good news. Look at verse 35. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask. Can I just pause right there? They should ask. Let's look at that in a glass half full, okay, for a second. They should ask. Women should learn. Women should be disciples of Christ, right? They need to be apprentices of Jesus. It is good for women to learn the gospel and the truth of the scriptures, to become literate, right? If, if some of these women couldn't read, it is good for them to learn to read and to read the scriptures, as we saw last week, this is not an assumption held by many people at this, in this day. In the days in which Christ lived on earth, in the days in which Paul ministered, women were not seen as those who should be given the dignity of, of, of an education. But Paul says women should learn. They should learn. They're disciples of Jesus. Listen to Craig Keener. He says, Paul provides a long-range solution. These women should ask their husbands at home to explain matters. In today's culture, this may sound repressive, but in Paul's day, it expressed the opposite attitude. Ancient writers testified that most husbands thought their wives incapable of learning academic disciplines. Those who thought husbands should provide private tutoring for their wives who had less education opportunities were a more progressive minority. And Paul's language here is more progressive than even most of their own. His long-range solution to their being uneducated novices is that they should be allowed to learn and their marriage partners should be committed to furthering their, their learning. And thankfully, the answer here is access. It's access. Paul thinks that husbands who have been given the advantage of an education better do their best to bring their wives up to speed at home. And so all the questions they're asking in the worship say, hey, let's say this for, I'll, I'll give you the background. I've been given the benefit of this education. I'll, I'll bring you up to speed at home. But they needed equal access to learning the scriptures. And so I said earlier on, you and I are gonna have to make a choice when we come to this passage. Is this a passage, as complementarians argue, about authority, men having authority over their wives? Or is this passage a passage about access? access to education. Women, those wives, saving their questions till they got home so that there can be order in worship. So I'm putting it back on you. 
you're, you're going to have to make a choice in how you understand these passages. Add up the data, and where do you land? Is this about authority, or is this about access? Scott McKnight summarizes things like this. He says, quote, This conclusion has significant implications. Paul's silencing of women at Corinth is then only a temporary silencing. Once the women with questions had been educated, they would be permitted to ask questions in the gatherings of Christians, or better yet, would have no need to ask questions. Ah, beautiful. You know, the wives have been brought up to speed. Fully educated. Great. Again, how do you put the pieces together? Well, I want to end with Jesus. Let's end with Jesus. Do you remember last week? Jesus gave dignity and access to learning to women. Do you remember Mary, who sits at the feet of Jesus as an apprentice of Jesus, listening to her rabbi, right? Jesus, the teacher, giving her the dignity of an education, following her teacher. Women, women, as we saw last week, were the first to carry the good news of the resurrection of Jesus upon their own lips. They would not be silent. They would be the first to proclaim the good news of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive. And women come to the tomb on Easter morning, and an angel says to them, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. North Langley, that's not a trivial detail. Women are the first to announce the good news of the risen Christ. The good news that Jesus was alive was placed upon the lips of women, on the lips of Mary Magdalene. That does not sound like silence to me. It just doesn't. So I want to tell you a personal story. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been thinking a lot about this topic, and I've been trying to prepare for this series. And um, some of you will know that, you know, this last summer, I took a stack of books, commentaries, and spent the whole summer kind of in this topic, uh, trying to give an equal voice to both sides of this issue. And so it's felt like a long journey. And then this, throughout this fall, our elders met for retreat, our staff met, met for a retreat all on this topic, diving into the word. Uh, and so you know the journey that our church has been on. And so it was, it was late in the fall, November, December or something, when our elders gathered. And, uh, and in, a, in a very powerful meeting, kind of went around the room and, and made that decision to move from a soft complementarian to an egalitarian position. And um, this, this gathering was only taking place like a block from my house. So when the elders made that decision, and uh, just for the record, I don't have a vote <laughs> on, the, on the elder board. So was, you know, when the elders themselves made that decision, I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled. I was so excited. Because this really lined up with how I had put together, you know, in my mind, all the data from the scriptures. And so I was overjoyed, and I, was, and I walked a block home at night um, in the evening, and when I got home, my girls were being, all my kids were being put to bed. And Micah, my son, had already, I think he'd already fallen asleep. But the girls were still awake, and I saw their light on in their room. And so I, like, went in, and, uh, and Lucy and Ella were, you know, they were still awake. And they said, they were like, Daddy, where were you today? And I was like, oh, well, actually, I was, on, I was in this meeting all day to talk about, um, 
to talk about uh, women leading in the church and uh, preaching in the church. And uh, Lucy, uh, she was going to bed. She said, women are allowed to preach? She said, I thought only men were allowed to preach. I men preach. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, we have Janet Tyson preaching here, Michelle Epp teaching here. Um, Lucy doesn't remember it, but her own mother preached here years ago. And, uh, and I was like, how, how did she learn that? And um, I had no idea that she thought that. And something in me just uh, was profoundly sad at that moment. And so I said, based on what the elders had just decided minutes ago, I said to her, I said, yes, sweetie. I was like, you can preach. You can teach. You can be a pastor, right? And, you know, she closed her eyes and went to bed. And I'm like, man, I am committed to, to let my daughters know that, 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 that the good news of the gospel can be on their lips. And they don't need to be silent. Um, uh, that they can preach the good news. And so I, I share that. That's very personal. I know that if you're a complementarian, um, a, a story like that can be like, um, maybe uh, I know kind of difficult to hear, like in a series like this. I'm just kind of sharing that from my own life and saying, it's good news. <laughs> I think it's good news in the price home. It's good news for Lucy. It's good news for Ella. I'm excited about the, the, their life ahead of them and, um, and the freedom they have to proclaim the good news. So listen to Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. All the barriers, you know, because of Jesus, all the barriers between men and women, all the dysfunction between men and women, the brokenness between men and women um, is starting to just crumble and be abolished. And Jesus is bringing hope uh, to all of the brokenness there. Male and female are now one in Christ Jesus. The curse of the fall has been healed in Christ Jesus. Jesus is restoring the church to that original partnership in the Garden of Eden, co-ruling all creation. I think that is great news. It is such good news for the world. Women and men are both called to serve and to lead and to prophesy together. It's right there in the pages of Scripture. So we're better when women and men are leading together. Can we stand together as a church family? As we stand, I would just encourage you to close your eyes, spend a moment with the Lord here. We're going to have our prayer team come forward. A reminder that our prayer team is in the prayer room, and our prayer team will be up front. But let's just take a quiet moment here, and I just want to ask you, what is the Spirit of God doing in your heart here today? Some themes that we've been focused on in this series are, first of all, women in the room who uh, at some point in your life, you've been discouraged from teaching, from leading somehow in Christian circles. And what if God could fan a flame for a teaching role, a leadership role, getting that degree, <laughs> getting equipped to be a leader in the church? Another theme that we've been praying into is the theme of unity and love for those who see the issue differently. And I, I know right now, maybe as you have your eyes closed in prayer, it's just some names come to mind. Maybe a friend who you found out sees this issue differently and uh, you want to be reconciled to them. 
can pray into that. And finally, some of you here are brand new to Jesus. And if that's you, we're excited you're here. And maybe on this Sunday, uh, you'd love to go meet one of our prayer team members and let them know you're interested in following Jesus. Uh, you see his good news of, 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 of the good news of the gospel and you're drawn to him. And so I'd encourage you to take that step and, and talk to one of our prayer team people. So Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask in your mercy that you would just do what you need to do in this room. Bring reconciliation, bring freedom, reignite a passion for ministry, to use our gifts for your glory. And Lord God, we love you and we trust you. You're the shepherd of our church. Keep leading us in speaking. Amen.